This is Eric Knopf, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You are tuned in to episode 4.13 of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by TAS by MND, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. I woke up this morning and started reflecting a little bit about how we are in uncharted waters these days. Certainly, most of our lives as we know it have kind of been flipped on their sides with the whole COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic, global pandemic. Certainly has put some things into perspective for me Um, you know we're all affected by this we have uh, what we thought of as normal life affected um, affected trips work has been affected really just life as we know it I heard an analogy last night about how many people are dealing with um, the psychological aspect of this COVID-19 and and how it's it's pretty similar to how people deal with grief, right? There's a few stages of grief, uh, starting with denial and then anger and then bargaining, maybe a bit of depression and then acceptance. And, uh, I don't know where you all are in, in in this process or if you're even dealing with this, but uh, I, I'm probably somewhere in the bargaining to depression side of things. Um, a couple things that I've found are, are very helpful for me are, are just getting outside and exercising, getting that release of, uh, of working hard physically, and, and it allows me to kind of clear my head um, as well. But that does come at a price given um, our, uh, the, 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 the suggestions of needing to social distance and um, at first I thought, well, backcountry skiing is the perfect thing, right? And, and uh, I can be by myself, getting exercise, doing what I love, finding some joy in, in, in the natural world as well, and, and not be around other people. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, that is, that's one outlet that I'll continue to use. Um, but I, I've also been trying to balance the fact that what if I got hurt doing that and I needed help in the backcountry if I was by myself or maybe with Stephanie and, and something went wrong and that would be a tap on the, on the system that maybe we can't afford right now. And so I would implore everybody out there to um, make some calculated decisions when you are traveling in the backcountry. I was just trolling around on the internet a little bit. It looked like San Juan County in Colorado has closed essentially all backcountry use to non-locals. Um, and there's been, I think in the last few days, there's been five separate very close calls with avalanche accidents and near misses. Um, and so just think about your actions in the world these days um, more so than maybe we ever have we've often taken for granted that that help could be a phone call away and in these uncertain times I think uh, that, that that might take a um, uh, might take unneeded resources away from uh, the bigger problem at hand right now man sounds pretty heavy um, I'm also doing my best to just try to stay positive in these times and, and uh, 
hey, it's a great time to catch up on doing some podcasting. Um, so as we accept the current situation and move on and find a, a new way to go about our daily lives, um, some things that are happening within our community is Avalanche Education is shifting online. I've seen several providers offering um, some online tutorials. What a great what a great time to kind of brush up on some of this Avalanche Education. Today's episode is going to feature Eric Knopf. Eric has had a variety of experiences within his career in the snow and avalanche world. Um, he started out as a ski patroller at, at Snowbird, Utah, and transitioned from there up to Montana, to Bozeman, Montana, where he was a, a forecaster for the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center out of Bozeman, Montana, for about 10 years. Um, and since then, he's moved on. He's, he's facilitated his passion for motorized snow sports, as well as continued to do lots of skiing in the backcountry. And his newest venture is Avalanche Education, which was no, um, it was not new to Eric. He'd done much outreach and education with the National Forest Avalanche Center out of the Bozeman area. But uh, he and uh, another partner, Bill Radicke, they've started a, a new education model called Six Points Avalanche Education. Um, and so we talked with Eric about some ways that he feels like Six Points Avalanche Education can maybe cater to some some different groups than other avalanche education models um, and how it could be an effective way to reach out to the motorized community. Um, we also talked with Eric about some research he's been doing with a data set on large column tests and some false positive, false stable results um, that we need to be aware of in some of these tests and how to maybe better interpret um, these tests a little bit. So without further ado, here we go with Eric Knopf. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks, Caleb. Yeah, good morning. I um, was hoping you could introduce yourself to the community. Tell us what you, where you're from, kind of your past and current roles within the avalanche world. Yeah, so it's um, it's been kind of a diverse road, for sure. Um, I spent the last 10 winters working for the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center here in Bozeman. And uh, prior to that, I was a ski patroller at Snowbird for six winters and did uh, spent four seasons um, forecasting for the going to the Sun Road in Glacier Park and have basically been obsessed with snow since I was five years old. Mm -hmm. And where'd you, where'd you grow up? Um, I grew up in the flatlands of Minnesota, you know, and uh, yeah, just started skiing at a young age and, and just was obsessed with, uh, with snow in general. And I remember coming to Montana, I think I was six or seven, and we drove through Paradise Valley going to Yellowstone. And I remember looking around saying, I'm going to live here someday. Mm. I think I was, you know, I was really young and it, I'm pretty fortunate that it worked out that, like that. So after Minnesota, did you venture West for, for school or, or just for recreation or what brought you West? Yeah, I just started coming out skiing. Um, had a good friend in high school whose uh, younger or older sister was actually a ski patroller at Bridger. And so when we were in high school, we would come out and um, stay with her, you know, I was 14, 15, and, and she would show us around Bridger. And I think when I was 16 or 17, something like that, I hit one of the cold smoke days, you know, and just waist deep how, and I was blown away. And from that point, I was like, I know where I'm moving. And so, yeah, after high school, I moved to Bozeman and, and attended MSU and went from there. Cool. And then, and then a, a short stint down, or not really a short stint, but a stint down in the Wasatch as well, sounds like. Yep. So, you know, almost 10 years in Bozeman and then, um, yeah, just needed a change of scenery and wanted to go to the places that got the most snow and ended up in Little Cottonwood. And, um, but the thing that facilitated that was, um, um, spending a summer mountain guiding on, uh, 
on Mount Rainier for RMI. Mm -hmm. And so met a lot of snowbird ski patrollers um, working for RMI. And that's that's how I ended up basically in Little Cottonwood. But I was super psyched to end up there. And it, it was uh, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. So it sounds like that's kind of where you really started to cut your teeth in the avalanche realm. And what better way than to see avalanches happen through an active mitigation program, such as what Snowbird has going on, right? Yeah, totally. Is it stable or is it unstable? Well, let me put a two pounder on a stick and we'll find out, mm -hmm. you know, only if we had that luxury in backcountry forecasting or skiing. But uh, yeah, a lot of snow, a lot of avalanches. It seemed like pretty much every year I was there was average or above average. So lots of uh, lots of experience in mitigation and um, just managing um, you know heavy snow loads not just in the ski resort but also outside the ski resort it was uh, it was pretty informative yeah and, and I'm sure a great group of experienced patrollers and, and some mentorship that went on there as well yeah for sure the the knowledge base and the experience in Little Cottonwood Canyon is is as good as any place you'll you'll go and had some great mentors and uh, I still talk to a lot of those guys on a pretty regular basis and just feel super uh, super thankful I got that experience. Mm -hmm. So Eric, it, it sounds like you're kind of in a pivot point in your career right now. You, you're you've kind of made a change in career path from avalanche forecasting to focusing a little bit more on avalanche education. Um, and you and a, and a partner are coming out with a new avalanche education model um, and company. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I would. Uh, I'd be happy to. You know, um, spending ten winters with the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center. You do, you know, your main focus is um, is backcountry forecasting, but you also do a ton of avalanche education. And the beauty of that is you get to um, really um, educate um, in a diverse field. So it's not just skiers; it's skiers, snowmobilers. You know, you get your cross country skiers. You you really get a kind of the the whole gamut of um, education opportunity. And so, yeah, I've just, I'm, I've always been super interested in avalanche education. I think it's, you know, it's obviously um, in high demand with the growing um, population heading in the backcountry. And so, yeah, I just, um, I saw an opportunity there and found a, a excellent partner, Bill Radicke, who's located in Idaho Falls. And we just kind of came up with the idea that, uh, there's a service, especially in Southwest Montana, to um, provide avalanche education, mainly focusing on the motorized user group. And if you take a look at all the classes that are offered, uh, Southwest Montana, Jackson area, you know, I'd say 90 to 95% of all classes offered are, are for the non-motorized, the skiers, uh, backcountry skiers specifically. So yeah, there just seems to really be an opportunity um, to, to try and make inroads into that motorized community. And uh, Montana leads the, the nation with snowmobile avalanche fatalities. And, you know, over the past 10 seasons, there have been 256 avalanche fatalities in the U.S. And that's a lot if you think about it. 256 fatalities and 76 of those have been snowmobilers. So they make up about 30% of all avalanche fatalities, but snowmobilers make up far less than 30% of the entire user group out there accessing the backcountry. So I think we all know that uh, snowmobilers are capable of getting in avalanches and education really can make a difference. Well, it seems like in Southwest Montana, especially, um, there's some interesting user groups of not just local motorized use but tourists that are coming in you know you look at a place like west yellowstone people come from probably all around the world to go snowmobiling there right yeah i think snowmobile i think west yellowstone holds the title snowmobile capital of the world right and so you have um you know maybe where you have some pretty savvy local riders who could always advance their avalanche education but you also have these people coming in with they might not even know how to spell avalanche as craig gordon has said one time you know like and so they have no idea right yeah I, I it's no secret that you know the southwest montana cook city west yellowstone island park 
attracts a lot of people from the Midwest, Minnesota, North Dakota, Wisconsin, Michigan. And those people have a history of getting in trouble. And there have been a string of avalanche fatalities um, that have involved um, tourists or, or people from the Midwest who are traveling. And I think what happens is you know these guys they a lot of a lot of snowmobilers carry the proper gear they know what avalanches are most of them can spell avalanche they have a good idea but they just get out west they've been saving up for this trip and they they get out and they're just so fired up and so pumped and the new machines these days are obviously capable of taking anybody just about anywhere and uh and they just the blinders i think get put on a little bit and they can um, they can find themselves in trouble, but that's not to say that local riders don't find themselves in trouble either. So I think it's um, and with skiers too, it's um, people coming out here from uh, from a lot of different places to ski can can tend to overlook some uh, some simple avalanche problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like the industry as a whole is starting to recognize this, right? That that we need to start to target uh, the motorized population a little bit more. So Eric, your company is called Six Points Avalanche Education, and I was wondering if you could explain what sets it apart from other avalanche educator providers. Yeah, Six Points Avalanche Education, uh, we get a lot of questions like, how'd you come up with that name? And a snowflake has six points, and that's kind of uh, where the name originated. But we also feel like we can make a model off of six points of avalanche education um, terrain, weather, snowpack, communication, decision-making, companion rescue, that might just be five, but, you know, following those guidelines and, um, you, you know, what sets our, we're not really trying to set ourselves apart from other providers. We're just trying to find a niche and provide a service to, uh, to the motorized user group, specifically in an area where there is a ton of traffic and not a lot of education being offered. And, um, you know, I feel like my forecasting background and and knowing the area pretty well or very well and knowing a lot of the players involved, a lot of the the snowmobile rental companies and um, people offering um, guide services in West Yellowstone and around um, Southwest Montana, I feel that that um, help strengthen our, our ability to communicate and connect with the user groups. And then my partner, Bill Radicke, he is an excellent snowmobiler. He was a snowmobile guide in West Yellowstone for 10 years. He knows the community really well. Um, along with his guiding experience, he's got a ton of education experience, um, motorized education experience, and he's been a paramedic in Idaho Falls for a long time. So his his uh, medical background combined with his um, guiding skills and his education makes him a super strong partner. So I, I feel like our combined skill set um, allows us to offer a, a really good educational experience and a, and a solid product. So from talking to you about your model outside of this interview, um, it seems like you're going to put on um, pretty specific classes for this user group and um, you're able to tailor these to the specific needs of the people that want this education right so it's not just a cookie cutter class that's going to be the same for everybody in the same location right so talk a little bit about the personalization of this education for people that want to um, take a class from you yeah that's a really good point um, i think we are focusing one of our main focus points is to provide a more kind of private slash custom education experience. And so instead of trying to provide that cookie cutter class, you know, we're on January 22nd, 23rd and 24th, we're going to offer a level one. And, and we do want to offer that, you know, that type of structure, but we also want to provide a more custom, um, education experience or more personal experience and and be like, hey, if you can round up, you know, five or six buddies, we will come to your house or come to your hotel room. We'll set up, 
you know, our, our equipment and we can do two or three or four hours of classroom time, whatever you guys prefer. And I think people are just more accustomed to asking better questions and to having um, better conversations when they're in a, a more private personal setting than being in like a big classroom type setting. And then say, okay, well, we can do two or three hours of classroom and then one full field day, you know, the next day. So it's, it's more of, you know, like an advanced awareness type mm -hmm. class. And what we have found with specifically with snowmobilers is they're coming out for a five day vacation, say from the Midwest or trailer and all their stuff to West or to cook. And they don't want to spend three of those five days kind of involved in a structured class. And I think they'd be surprised how much snowmobiling you actually do in a level one snowmobile level one. But um, I think, you know, just hammering home some basic points is really important for these guys. And so just a few hours of classroom session and then one full field day, really focusing on terrain assessment, maybe digging a few snow pits and then doing some companion rescue drills. Just that kind of, um, that kind of setup, you know, is, is pretty enticing to these guys that are coming out and for four or five days and not wanting to spend half or more of their time in an avalanche class. So we really want to provide that type of opportunity as well as just doing your standard recreational level one. Um, I don't think we're really going to dive into the pro courses or level twos at this point in time. This is our first season, just kind of getting on our, on our feet. And so um, trying to keep it simple and is going to allow us to really focus on what we need to. But, um, but we, yeah, we, we tend to expand into or plan to expand into more, um, involved avalanche education but right now standard one hour awareness classes your more advanced awareness which i just talked about a little bit of classroom time one full field day and then uh, level ones along with some companion rescue courses as well that's kind of our main focus this season okay and eric it seems like you kind of blend the lines between skier and snowmobiler and and, and you have quite a bit of experience doing both um i think it's probably safe to say most of my listeners are not snowmobilers. Um, I'm hoping to change that. But uh, maybe kind of enlighten us as to how a snowmobiler might look at terrain or might get, find themselves in trouble um, a little bit quicker than a skier or, or a snowboarder. Yeah, snowmobiling is a, is a completely different mode of travel, and it's really a completely different mindset than skiing and uh you know having grown up a skier and been a backcountry skier for many years and then just kind of expanding into the snowmobile realm since i started working at the gallatin so over the past 10 winters and i've really grown to enjoy snowmobiling and, and learn the ins and outs of it and it's um you know with a skier you're you're taking the time you're you're on the snow you're moving a lot slower it's way easier to communicate with your partner as you're talking and you might hit one or two slopes, you know, in a morning or, a, or a, even a full day. And you, you have a little more intimate kind of connection with the snowpack. Um, you can hear those obvious signs of instability or see them maybe a little bit better. Take some time to dig some snow pits. But um, with snowmobiling, it's just a so much higher pace. And these new machines these days are just rockets basically between your legs and and it's you can hit 10 slopes in an hour 30 40 slopes in a day you're just like look at that slope look at that slope i mean this is amazing and the the beauty of the throttle is you don't you don't need a steep slope to shred the pow right like when you're on skis you kind of need some pitch you need that 25 to 30 degree slope angle to really get moving and to kind of enjoy skiing that powder but on a snowmobile a, a flat meadow or just a 15 degree kind of rolling meadow you know is just unbelievable if you have good snow conditions and so your ability to just travel really quickly and i think that facilitates just um a little bit more impulsive type decision making you're not slowing it down you're not uh, communicating thoroughly with your partners all the time. You're like, oh my God, look at that slope over there. I can be over there in 30 seconds and I can just be shredding it, you know, and then you do that. And then 
you're like, look at that slope over there. And it's, um, so with the snowmobile, um, approach, just hammering home terrain assessment is so important. And that's kind of the baseline of our education curriculum, um, with the motorized user group is just terrain, 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 because if you're not in avalanche terrain, you're not going to be caught in avalanche. Um, but it's a lot more complicated than it sounds. And with snowmobilers, I think they understand, they'll, they know what the forecast is. A lot of them are like, Hey, we read the forecast, you know, or we know it's dangerous. We're not going to play on steep slopes today. And so they'll be playing in lower angle terrain. But I think what, um, a lot of people miss is, um, remote triggering. So when we know it's dangerous, we're not going to be on steep slopes. We're just going to kiss the bottoms of these steep slopes or play in this lower angle terrain that's connected to steeper slopes above and snowmobilers getting caught, um, you know, triggering a slope from the bottom. And what's kind of scary about that is a lot of times there'll be more than one person kind of traveling in that zone, you know, in that runout zone. And so trying to get people to recognize what avalanche terrain is and even really small slopes, road cuts are something that people really tend to overlook. And, you know, snowmobile travel, you can be in little gullies really easily and just little side hills, creek bottoms, things like that. Super fun to play around in. But just these little terrain trap type features and triggering a slope that's 40, 50 feet high can just push you into a gully and, and, uh, and get you. So trying to, trying to really make clear what avalanche terrain is. I mean, that's a huge part of our, of our focus was six points. Mm. Yeah. And something we were talking about before we press record, um, when you mentioned Bill had 10 years of snowmobile guiding experience, I tried to kind of take myself and put myself in a, in a snowmobile guides shoes. And it I started thinking about it and it was immediately totally overwhelming to think about reining in and managing a group of six people on snowmobiles, right? And so group management and kind of managing those group dynamics in a group of motorized users is quite a bit more unique than taking a three or four people out backcountry skiing. Care to comment on that? Yeah, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. Just uh, coordinating and group dynamics, uh, snowmobiling is completely different than skiing. And it's uh, it's very easy to to make a plan, you know, with, with your riding buddies, your, your snowmobile buddies. And literally, you know, as soon as you get to your zone, that plan is has changed completely. And it is, it kind of defines, you know, the term herding cats, you know, if you get out and, and, um, and communication with your, with your snowmobile partners is so important. And so when, when I'm teaching avalanche classes, to snowmobilers, everybody has to have a radio. So the BCA link radios are super important. Um, a radio check is, is almost as important or as important as a beacon check. You know, is everybody's radio on? Are we all on the same channel? If something goes wrong, we're operating on this channel. And then we, you know, if there's some, if you get lost, then we can try to communicate on this channel. I mean, really just um, defining your, your communication process is super important. And I remember one day I was teaching an avalanche class um, to snowmobilers and I was setting up a rescue scenario kind of in this little basin and and uh, so I had my I had my uh, my victims and then we were kind of putting together the scenario and I told the rescuers I think there were four four rescuers I'm like okay go over to the end of the meadow you know just hang out while we kind of arrange this scenario and so they they rode off and then you know, two minutes later, one of the guys just comes screaming back. And I was like, hey, we're not done putting together the scenario yet. yet. And he's like, I just triggered this huge avalanche. And I was, and I'm like, what? And, you know, I told him to go wait over at the end of the meadow. And that meant go like tool around for a little bit. And I mean, fortunately, it wasn't any 
it, no one got caught and it wasn't any, it wasn't a dangerous situation, but it was just kind of an eye opener, like how specific you have to be with your instructions. And from a guiding standpoint, um, you know, that's one of the main topics Bill would, would always tell me is like, you have to be so specific when you're taking a group out either guiding or um, in an education atmosphere. This is not about playing. This is not about riding. This is about education and we are sticking together as a group and you have to define those guidelines so specifically. Um, and I think that that can just carry over into your every, everyday riding uh, um, structure, you know, and so just trying to trying to make sure everybody's kind of reined in a little bit is, is really complicated. But on a snowmobile, I can't even describe how easy and quick it is to get separated from your group. And all of a sudden you're, you just pop over a ridge and you get stuck or you go down in a little gully and you get stuck and no one knows where you went. Um, and so it's, it happens so quick. It happens super easy. So yeah, just trying, knowing how to manage that type of situation is really important. Yeah. Are, are people using, um, kind of Bluetooth in helmet radios at all, or is it all kind of on the, on the pack, the BCA link style? And, and if it is just on the pack, um, can you usually hear that over the motor of the machine? Yeah, it's. I, I do know a few people who have Bluetooth in their helmet. I don't think that's the norm yeah. by any means. Yeah, I'd, I'd say a majority is on the pack. And it is actually pretty easy to hear your, your radio if you're stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, while you're cruising around, different story. But if you just, if you notice someone is missing, obviously last seen point's pretty important. And then, um, yeah, just stop and really work on trying to communicate with that person. You know, it seems to me like it's kind of a double-edged sword because somebody on a machine can see so much terrain. We talk about, you know, keeping our eyes, keeping all of our senses aware in avalanche terrain, right? To, to clue into what the snowpack and the terrain is telling us. And so somebody on a machine can cover so much ground and gather so many observations if they're looking in the right place for it. But on the same note, I can imagine when I'm out skiing, if I feel and hear a whoomph, that's really good. That's a really good data point for me. And so I can imagine, you know, being on a machine, it might inhibit some of those senses um, to, to being able to feel something like a whoomph or hear a whoomph. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I've, I'm sure I've collapsed tons of slopes riding mm-hmm. my snowmobile around. And I can't really pinpoint a specific time when I was like, whoa, did you feel that collapse on my snowmobile? Obviously, on skis, you're like, whoa, did you hear that? Did you see that mm-hmm. big shooting crack, you know? And it's definitely more difficult to, uh, to get that type of feedback and, and that type of um, that clue on a snowmobile. Obviously, recent avalanche activity, looking around um, on a snowmobile, you're covering a ton of terrain, so you get a good chance to look around a lot but we all know that mother nature doesn't doesn't always provide us um super obvious clues Mm -hmm. and so i think that's that's another point um in snowmobiling and in skiing why snow pits can be a really helpful tool um you know i i don't think it's super common for a group of snowmobilers to be like, hey, let's cruise over here and dig a snow pit or let's, you know, spend a bunch of time with our head in the snow. I think um, that's why terrain assessment is just super important. But, you, you know, the number one question is, are you in avalanche terrain? And so I always kind of hammer that one home. Question number one. And so I, I try to get my guys to, you know, two, can you answer two questions? One, are you in avalanche terrain? Two, can the snow slide? You know, and if you can kind of, if you can answer those two questions correctly or close, you know, you'll have a a pretty good idea or or be safe, uh, have a safe outing. But we know snow is just incredibly variable, right? And that's the trickiest part is when you're on a snowmobile, you can hit 20 slopes in a day and maybe it's a moderate or even a low day and a high percentage of those slopes are, are stable, but maybe one isn't. 
And so um, it's, it's kind of a probability game, I guess, when you're just hitting slope after slope. But, um, you know, I try to emphasize to in snowmobile education that snow pits, you don't need to get off your sled and, you know, dig a huge pit and whack out about a bunch of stability tests. And that's really good to do that. But to get out off your sled, even just like stepping off your sled is going to give you immediate feedback. Are you sinking into facets like off your sled? And you're going to know that when you're riding around, like this is super hard riding, you know, I'm just bogging down tracks, like shooting down to the dirt, you know, and it's, there's no base and it's that, that gives you a lot of feedback right there. But, um, but if you get off your sled, stick your shovel in the snow, get your group together and just communicate with one another. And I think that's where snow pits are super important is they just slow things down. It's not all about whacking out all these stability tests. It's about taking the pit stop, you know, is what I like to call it. Getting your group together, looking at the snow is super helpful. But then you have, you can communicate with one another. What do you think? You know, what's, have you been seeing anything or that just that simple communication level is important. And then, um, and so, yeah, it's slowing things down, communicating with your partners, I think can really help reduce that kind of basic human factor line and give us just a piece of information to make our, base our decisions off of. Um, good decisions are based off of information. So the more information you have, the better. But uh, yeah, I just like, I like snow pits one for taking a look at the snow, but two for really slowing it down and communicating. And I think that's a huge uh, positive hammer home point for for motorized and non-motorized. Yeah, sure. It gets everybody back on the same page perhaps, right? Yeah, that's that's the goal. So Eric, you've, I, I bet you've dug some holes in the snow over your career and, and dug some snow pits and um, you have some kind of interest, an interesting data set concerning some large column tests. So we're talking about the extended column test and the propagation saw test, which tests for propagation within the snowpack, right? And, and so I was hoping you can maybe talk a little bit about the, the data set that, that you have and, and have, have gathered amongst from Snowpilot and, and some of the implications there. Yeah, so being uh, being a backcountry forecaster uh, for ten years, I dug a lot of holes in the snow and isolated a lot of columns, and I think I even got a pretty severe wrist injury one season <laughs> from banging so many columns, and uh, and that actually that's what kind of started facilitated me looking more at PSTs uh, because I it really hurt to like hit these columns. So I was like, oh, I'm going to start doing, uh, start doing some propagation saw tests, just kind of see what that's like. And, um, so the, the main focus with stability tests, one is to just, you know, determine is, is it stable or is it unstable, you know? And, um, that's kind of the answer you're trying to, or the question you're trying to answer. And, um, and, and it also helps you track stability from a forecasting standpoint. Stability tests are good. Like, is it getting more stable or is it getting less stable? What's our weak layer doing? And I find stability tests are actually a really helpful tool to just kind of answer that question. Um, but, you know, looking at the two different types of tests that I use mostly, which is the ECT and the PST, you know, over four or five years ago, I... I always do an ECT first. That's kind of my baseline stability test. But I, I just started doing more PSTs in the same snow pit that I was doing my ECTs in. And so, you know, I started to kind of see how these tests relate with one another. And if you look at some data from Snowpilot, um, Snowpilot's a, uh, an online um, snow profile program. And I highly recommend people sign up and, and enter their their profiles and, and information, their data into Snowpilot is a super useful tool. But, um, you know, out of 15, more than 15,000 snow pits since 2010, and these are just snow pits that have a stability test associated with them. I think since 2010, there's been over 20,000 snow pits entered into Snowpilot. Um, but a lot of those don't have stability tests, they're just profiles and whatnot. 
So 15,540 stability tests or uh, profiles with stability tests. Um, 77% of those profiles have an ECT, an extended column test, which is 90 centimeters long by 30 centimeters wide on the front wall of your snow pit, isolate the entire column, and you just apply your standard loading steps, 10 from the wrist, 10 from the elbow, 10 from the shoulder. You're, you're looking at initiation and propagation. Am I able to initiate a fracture in a buried weak layer? And is that weak layer capable of collapsing and propagating? That's kind of what you're trying to determine with the extended column test. And that requires, you don't have to predetermine a weak layer. You just kind of isolate the column and hammer away on it. And then the PST, the propagation saw test, is done on the sidewall of your snow pit. Um, and that's 100 centimeters long, a meter long by 30 centimeters deep. There's a few, um, the dimensions can change a little bit, but we won't go into that. Typically, it's a meter long by 30 centimeters wide. And you do have to predetermine the weak layer with that one. And you say, here's my layer of surface hoar. I just got an ECTP, you know, 21 on, on this layer of surface hoar with my ECT. I'm going to see what my cut length is with my PST. And um, let's say, you know, your cut length is 30 centimeters over, you know, at 30 centimeters, you get a sudden collapse. The, the entire block collapses. It propagates to the end of the column. That would be 30 over 100 to end, and that would also be an unstable result. And so that that's a, a different test. That's just kind of determining um, propagation propensity. It's not really looking at initiation like you are with the ECT, but I feel like doing those two tests together really gives you a more thorough stability assessment. Um, and what you're trying to do by doing both of those tests is to eliminate the probability of getting a false stable. And so a false stable is when your stability test indicates um, the slope is stable when in fact it's unstable. And that's like the worst scenario you can get. And so I've, I have found that doing um, both tests really helps me kind of determine a little bit more what, um, what, the cap or what the stability is like. And so the ECT is, you know, been, is, is the most popular stability test in Snowpilot. 77% um, of all profiles with a stability test have an ECT, but only 13% of all, all profiles entered have a PST, a propagation saw test. So 77% with ECT, 13% with the PST. I'm just trying to collect some data to determine um, the relationship between these tests. And I want to see those numbers get a little closer to one another. Like I want to see more um, profiles in Snowpilot having PSTs. Because I think learning how these two tests behave with one another is, is really important data. And it's going to help us determine what structure um, is, is valuable or what test is most effective on what snowpack structure. And yeah, so I have a data set, 394 data points right now looking at um, how the ECT and the PST relate with one another. And one data point is an ECT and a PST done on the same slab weak layer combination in the same snow pit. And so I've collected a bunch of data. Ben Vandebos, my buddy who works at the Sawtooth Center, has collected a bunch of data, and I've extracted a lot of data from Snowpilot. So that's kind of makes up my my complete data set. But what I've found is that 69% um, of the time, um, the tests agree with one another. The ECT and the PST, they both give stable results, or they both give unstable results. And so that's pretty good. 69% of the time, it's, but it's not great. I mean, what, what about that other 31% of the time where the tests disagree with, with each other? And so my data is showing that 19% of the time, the PST is showing an unstable result, while the ECT is showing a stable result. And that mostly has to do with um, a deep slab problem. And so... A good part of the time when we have a thick, dense slab sitting over layer facets, it's hard to initiate a fracture in that buried weak layer with standard loading steps from the wrist, elbow, and shoulder with the ECT. And so you might get an ECTX or possibly an ECTN, which is a stable result. Um, and the PST 
if you just target that buried weak layer, tends to be a little more accurate um, it, or it, it, a little more effective, I should say. And then the other 12% of the time, the ECT is showing unstable results while the PST is showing stable results. And the time that I found the ECT to be more effective is when you have really like a thin layer of near surface facets, let's say it's just like one millimeter near surface facets and your ECTs are propagating, you know, like crazy. And you're like, yeah, there's a facet layer in there. But if you look at the pit wall, you know, you're going, I can't see that layer. Like it's super thin. And so to try to follow those really thin layers with your saw when you're doing a PST can be really challenging. And so if you're, that's the thing with the PST is that you have to keep that blunt end of the saw in the weak layer. If it wavers at all, you're gonna get a, a skewed result. And I think that's where you'll get these longer cut lengths with these really thin layers. And um, that can give you a, a stable result with a PST when in fact, you know, the, the slope is unstable. And also with storm snow with a softer slab, um, the PST doesn't tends you tend to get more slab fractures. There's just not enough cohesion in that slab to communicate a fracture with the PST and and the ECT too can give you ECTNs. Um, so there's just a few different scenarios, but I that's where I'm just like I'm just going to do them both mm -hmm. because that can really help me answer uh, the question I'm looking for. Yeah, and hopefully help us rule out some false stables, right? Yep. Yeah. You want to rule. And so my, um, my bottom line is if I get one unstable result mm -hmm. in either one of those tests, then that's a red flag for me. So I'm just, you know, that's what I'm looking for. I'm, I'm putting a lot of weight into my unstable result. And so if I'm getting a, an ECT that should telling me it's stable, like with a big thick slab and I'm pounding on it and the ECT is like, hey, it's it's taking a ton of force to initiate, and I'm not getting down there. But my PSTs are like snapping across on a layer depth or like deeply buried facets. I'm like, okay, hard to initiate, but still has really good propagation propensity. You know what? I'm it's a deep slab problem, so I'm not messing with it in general. You know, but you want to watch out. Like if you are able to impact that weak layer, it's still capable of causing big problems. Right, and I think you got at this, but um, we should probably mention that an ECT really is only good to, what, what would you say, meter, meter 20, right? Like if, if you have a weak layer deeper than that, then the PST would be the appropriate large column test to be utilizing. Yeah, I think anything over a meter, you're going to be hurting your hand pretty bad, you know, yeah. wailing on that ECT. And a lot of it comes down to the density of the slab. Mm -hmm. You could have a meter of say fairly fresh snow and you know and maybe it's four finger to like fist plus up to fist and so you just got a big dump and 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 it's a meter thick but it's relatively soft slab and you're able to kind of generate the energy to impact that weak layer but once you start dealing with those four finger one finger pencil slabs um trying to trying to initiate a fracture in a, in a weak layer a meter i mean i've seen it like 60 centimeters deep a layer of near surface facets or surface or 67 70 centimeters deep with a one finger like wind slab sitting over it and you can wail on that that column all day long and you're not going to initiate mm -hmm. um you're not you're going to get an ectx you know and no result and so but yes i think anything over a meter you know you're going to be I think the PST is is a solid test for for um, assessing propagation propensity. But again, it's one of those things. Everything has to be done just right. Mm -hmm. Your column has to be clean. It has to be. You have to know what weak layer you're targeting, and that saw has to stay in that weak layer. That's how you're going to get a an accurate result with the PST. And is that part of the reason you think that there are fewer PSTs being done? Is just kind of education and people feel like they aren't doing it right or you got any stabs at why that um, I think the number one reason PSTs are less utilized is I I think people are just less familiar with it I don't think people are teaching it mm -hmm. um, 
in avalanche classes nearly as much as they're teaching in ECT. And I think, yeah, so I think that's probably the number one reason is just lack of familiarity with the test. And then I think the second reason, possible reason, is um, the PST has a, a perceived false stable rate of 30 to 44%. And so that's really high. That isn't good. Whereas the ECT has a perceived false stable rate of 5 to 10%. Uh, the lower your false stable rate, the better. And so I think there's kind of been this this thought that the PST is a dangerous test or it's an unreliable test because literature, the literature is, you know, 10 years old now, but it's still like the literature that's kind of describes the false stable rate of the PST is saying it's 30 to 44%. So one out of three, if not more tests are going to give you inaccurate information. And, you know, my data set here, almost 400 data points, isn't showing that at all. It's actually showing that the PST propagates just as much, if not more, than the ECT, depending on snowpack structure, obviously. Mm -hmm. But so more data needs to be collected. But um, I, I personally don't feel that the PST has this really high false stable rate of 30 to 44%. I think it's actually much closer to the ECT. So I think they're both really good tests. I think they both have pros and cons, but um, but I think they, they both can excel in certain situations. But I think doing them both in the same snow pit, targeting the same slab weak layer combination is gonna eliminate the potential for false stables and ultimately give you better information and hopefully help you make better decisions in the backcountry. Yeah, it seems like uh, some great research that you're doing there, Eric. Um, how can so if people are just inputting this information into Snowpilot this season or whenever you're listening to this podcast, um, are you going to get that data, or is there a better way to maybe get you some of these pits and some of these data points to help build upon this? Um, I think the easiest way is just enter that data into Snowpilot. Mm -hmm. So you can, you know, you can extract, you can query that that data pretty easily. So you can say all snow pits with an ECT and a PST, and you can get that information. Um, but if people want to send me their data, like I'd be psyched, you know, mm -hmm. I'm I am always pumped to get people's pits and their feedback on, hey, I did this, I did that, I think this is working, I don't think this is working. So they can, you know, send send me their info directly, um, you know, to my email or um, avalancheclass.com is, is our, is Six Points website. And you're, you can easily just contact us through that. Um, so yeah, but just entering it in the Snowpilot is by far the, the easiest. And you're going to, you'll get that data if it's entered in Snowpilot. I will. Yep. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yep. And then, um, you're going to like start a hashtag and some stickers and t-shirts that say like hashtag PSD for you and me or something like that. <laughs> you know, I don't think I'm going to go quite that far right now. I, I think there needs to be more data collected and there needs to be more assessment done yeah. Yeah. on what, how these, how the ECT and the PST work. Right. You know, it's kind of funny if you look at this data, you know, the Roosh block that used to be the standard, the number one go-to initiation propagation huge you know excavation project isolating a monster column you're actually like stepping onto it with your two tens on you know and and bouncing up and down and 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 it worked it i think it gave us valuable information but i think these newer tests give you the same information with a lot less um with a lot less effort but if you look at the roosh block in the past nine seasons in snow pilot less than one percent of people are are doing rouge blocks or entering them into Snowpilot anyway. So I think these ECT and the PST are kind of the the tests that people are really focusing on right now. So maybe not PST for you and me, but just try to <laughs> promote, you know, using both tests and and collecting that information is important. 
All right. Well, I'll keep working on a better hashtag to communicate that. Yeah, let me know. I think I think it'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, well, and chances are, if you've already excavated a, a pit and you've done an ECT, you should be able to have a nice clean sidewall to excavate a PST. Right. It doesn't Absolutely, take that yeah. much more work. No, it really, it doesn't. And if you're really trying to do your full profile, I mean, it's better to take your hardnesses and your layers on the sidewall of the snow pit anyway. So having having a nice clean sidewall, and that's what I found after doing my PST, the sidewall of my snow pit is like pristine, mm. you know, where it's cut. And so then that's a really good place to do your, your hardnesses and your layers. So it actually can kind of work together. Well, well, let's dig into that just a little bit, no pun intended. But so when you come up to a snow pit, Eric, are you, you're tapping an ECT right away and then moving into a PST, just from what you said, this is sounding like what your process is. And then you have your nice clean sidewall, right? And you've already been able to identify some weak layers through your ECT, right? Yep, that's correct. So with the ECT, you don't need to identify your layer of concern. You just isolate the column, start tapping on it, and see what pops out. And then that is going to help you determine what layers you need to focus on with your PST. Mm-hmm. So, yep, an ECT is a good first step, even doing a CT, a compression test. So compression test, extended column test, propagation saw test. It sounds like a lot, but once you get efficient at it, it, it doesn't take long at all. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like an old paradigm that I know when I was taught, it was like, you know, I'm looking for, I'm sliding my crystal card down, I'm looking for stratification in the snow pit before I do some of these tests. But really, these tests are great layer identification tools. For sure. Yeah. Yep. And everybody does it different. You know, I know a lot of people who are like, I do my layers first, and Mm -hmm. then I do my stability tests. And it's it's all personal preference. Sure. I usually whack out my CT and my ECT first and then, yeah, PST. And then I got, then my sidewall, my front wall and my sidewall are super clean after doing those tests. And uh, yeah, it just kind of works. Yeah. Awesome. Eric, I was hoping you could recount a story of a close call or an accident near miss or, or just learning point within your career. (laughs) Yeah. Where where do I start with that? Um, I think, um, one incident that comes to mind for sure is like my first year at in Montana when I was a student at MSU, maybe it was my second, but preseason, you know, it's, it kind of is pretty relevant to our situation right now. You know, early season snow, um, everybody's pumped. People are heading up to Bridger Bowl like, hey, it's the ski area, right? Like it's safe. And these were back in the days of Alpine trekkers and, you know, two tens and just going for it. And, um, anyway, I was, uh, I was, you know, I was in college and good storm. I think it was late November, early December ski area. Wasn't open, uh, get up to Bridger. Um, wind is howling. And I actually see this cornice just on this little gully, like break in front of me. And I was like, ah, whatever. And then I see like a shooting crack out from my skis. I'm like, yeah, no problem. I'm going to ski the apron because that's what my, that's what I'm going to do. And so I'm skinning along this kind of side hill. Beacon is in my pack turned off because avalanches don't happen when you're skinning uphill, right? And I was, but you know, I didn't have a partner and I'm side hilling this little, wasn't a big slope, but it was connected to some bigger terrain above me. Next thing I know, I'm just steamrolled, just bam. I mean, I didn't hear it. I didn't see it. I just was all of a sudden in the washing machine. Just, And it, it's amazing. Like, the second you're caught in an avalanche, like, you lose control. And so I couldn't have pulled my airbag there. My mouth immediately packed with snow. My ears, everything was just, I was just like, holy crap. And I was just getting, I'm like, I got to try to get pointed downhill so maybe I can somehow get pushed some, you know, to the side or whatever. And I actually was able to kind of do this tumble and try to stand up. And I felt the ski immediately get ripped off, but I still had one ski on and got pushed off to the side just enough. And I was buried up to my chest and I'm looking around. I'm just like, whoa, what happened? And didn't bother digging around, 
for my ski, just found one, you know, got my one ski and looked uphill, saw a crown. I was like, that was freaking scary. And then skied down on one ski, got a speeding ticket on my way home. You know, it was just one of those kind of series of events, but I made it home. And that definitely opened my eyes to like, okay, you need to start kind of figuring some things out. And with a lot of the um, students coming into MSU and a lot of younger crowds, I mean, it's easy to just kind of get so amped and get, and even when you're older, like the powder stoke can just get you, you know, so just take your time and like on at the bar or on at the car, off at the bar, um, travel plan, game plan, just slowing things down is, is so important. And so that, that was, uh, that was an eye opener for me for sure. And then, um, and then one other, um, event that comes to mind that wasn't really an avalanche incident where I wasn't involved, but one day at Snowbird, we, um, you know, it was nothing going on. It was like midwinter. We had a good base going and there were some lingering and deep instabilities, but we were in the ski resort. We had been shooting the crap out of everything, you know, and, it hadn't it hadn't been snowing much this week, I think, you know, maybe six, eight inches. And then one morning, it was a bluebird morning, I think we got two or three inches of snow overnight. And we were riding up the tram, and there were, like, full-depth releases all over the mountain. I mean, you're talking, like, massive slides. And, um, well, there were only a few full-depth releases, and that just kind of set off the, the warning signs, like, what's going on? So then we went out on a control completely unexpected and triggered, you know, full depth releases in the skier, like skier compacted slabs pulling out at the ground with like two or three inches of snow overnight. And so it's just one of those kind of reminders that you can never really underestimate the snowpack and terrain and never underestimate depth horror. Like depth horror is just the worst problem you can possibly deal with. And so if you have these deep instabilities they can start out plaguing you in november december and they'll plague you and plague you in april um and throughout the rest you know the entire winter so when you when you have a a deep instability don't ever really let your guard down with that and so that was kind of a big eye-opener too on how the how things can behave like that well thanks for sharing those experiences eric and thanks for coming on the show and, and talking about Six Points Avalanche Education. Um, I'm sure y'all are destined for some great things and some some. It seems like a great project to reach this mechanized user group a little bit better. Um, and also thanks for for bringing to light the data set that you have on these large column tests. And I think that's some great awareness that the community could use as well. So again, thanks for making the time and. Uh, Appreciated talking to you today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Caleb. I had a great time. Thanks for having me. All right. Cheers, man. Yeah, we'll talk to you later. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to that one. I'm sure you enjoyed it. I know I did. I've been seeing online that quite a few, or probably all, Avalanche Education has been um, canceled or, or is switching to an online format, as I was saying in the intro. And that's no different for Six Points Avalanche Education. If you're in need of some Avalanche Education, you, you're finding yourself with some extra time on your hands at home, and you want to brush up on your Abbey Ed, um, head on over to avalancheclass.com and get in touch with Eric. And he can set you up with some great online tutorials and in-person, I believe, online education. Um, so give those guys a follow on Instagram as well. They are at avalancheclass. And again, their website is avalancheclass.com. Looking forward to the future in the post-COVID-19 world where we can all go outside and recreate together. Think about um, getting in touch with these guys to have a, a K-12 
catered avalanche class during your time up in, in southwest Montana, perhaps. Uh, big thanks again to our sponsors. They are TAS by MND, makers of Gazex System, Daisy Bell, Obelex, Gazflex, and so much more. Check them out at TAS.FR. And Ten Barrel Brewing, our friends just up the road in Bend, Oregon. Um, thanks for everything you do for the snow sports community and the adventure sports community at large. And thanks for making such tasty beer. And finally, Interwest Insurance, our good friends at Interwest Insurance. Thank you guys for your continued support. Today our tracks, our musical tracks, were by Ketza. And in the intro you heard Mission Ready. And taking us out of the hour is Onwards and Upwards. And the use of these tracks were through permission of the artist. Uh, you can find more of their music at ketza.uk. As always, our artwork was created by Mike T. And as always, Mike T, you demand. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Be well, my friends. <laughs>